Well, Christian Fellowship Church, we continue our journey this morning in the book of Revelation, and uh, I don't want to waste any time. We need to get right into it, but it would not be a waste of time to pray one more again, because it is difficult, and we need the Lord to uh, be with us, minister to our hearts and our minds. Let's ask him for that. Father, we open up your word this morning, asking you for truly a revelation. Um, We pray that uh, we would gain from it what we're supposed to gain from it, and we need you to minister to our hearts and minds for that to be true, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, while you make your way to the book of Revelation, that's the last book in the New Testament, the last book in the Bible, go there and then find your way to chapter 11, and that's where we'll, we'll be this morning. Uh, I can't cover everything. I know I say that. I've been saying that frequently. It's just I can't ever cover everything in any text that we're in. I'm not sure I could cover everything if we just did one verse um, in any book of the Bible. It's just profound and rich and can be mined forever. Um, but as I'm preparing this passage uh, for the sermon for Revelation chapter 11, you know, I'm thinking to myself, uh, how discouraging it can be to hear that there are so many different views on things. I find myself saying, well, there's different views. Well, this is controversial. Well, you've heard it said this, but here's another option. And if you feel like your head is spinning, that, I think that's the normal Christian experience, that uh, interpreting Revelation is difficult. And because there are so many different views on the book of Revelation and there's so much differentiation in how we interpret the book of Revelation... We might be tempted to think, how, how do we trust anything at all? Why is there so much disunity when it comes to interpreting the book of Revelation? And if there's that much disunity, what's the point? Well, I want to encourage you, uh, there really is not that much disunity. Think about the mind-blowing experiment that is the United States of America. So many different states. So many different cultures. There's so many. There's uh, political parties that don't agree with one another. In what sense do we call this the United States of America? Well, I don't think we could argue that because there are different views and different political parties that we're not united. That there's there might as well not be a country. Might as well not even live here anymore. I think most of you would agree this is a great place to live if you look globally at your options. And we could be discouraged every election season that there isn't a greater agreement than there is. We could be discouraged that we have to have debates and argue around your own family table or Facebook that there's all these disagreements. But I don't think most of us would be driven to despair by that and throw up our hands and go, well, this country's terrible Let me leave. So, as I think about that, I I think there's there's great unity with evangelical Christians. And it's, uh, if you think of like the Catholic Church, okay, the Catholic Church is like England looking at the birth of America going, without a king at the top, it's just going to be chaos. 
Look at you with all your denominations, all your states, right? And then Protestants are basically going, uh, yeah, we have disagreements, but we also have a document. Now, there are disagreements on how to interpret that document, but that interpretation of the document is what unites us, see? And we don't disagree about everything in the document. There's large agreement on the interpretation of the document. There are some applicational differences from state to state, from party to party, maybe even from county to county, right? There's some applicational differences with regard to how Americans are supposed to implement what is laid out in that founding document. This, I'm not trying to give a United States history lesson. What I'm trying to encourage you is take a breath, relax, and understand there's major agreement across the book of Revelation throughout the centuries. Don't be discouraged on different interpretations. Think about them. Um, think about their detail. But be encouraged that there's broad and consistent agreements. That include, just for example, Jesus will return. I don't care if you're dispensationalist, pre-mill, amill, post-mill, all these words you want to use. Is Jesus returning? At the end of the whiteboard, however many whiteboards you have, timelines and charts, in the end, Jesus returns. Consistently throughout the history of the church, those who come will know Jesus did return already and he's returning three more times and, and this weird stuff. He came and gave golden tablets to our our dude on the mountain, they get ousted. Why? Because they're stepping outside of the broad agreement. There is a broad agreement there. Jesus will return. Jesus will rescue his church. Christians must endure to the end and never compromise with the world. Persecution is real. But Jesus will have total victory over every enemy. Satan his demons, all the nations that are behind him, and even death itself will be defeated by Jesus Christ. Christians look forward to a new earth. Christians look forward to glorified bodies. Christians look forward to unfettered, unadulterated worship of thanks and honor to our Savior, Jesus Christ, for being the conquering lamb. Everybody agrees on that. That gives us some breathing room to go, okay, Maybe you live in Kentucky and I live in Utah, but we're Americans here, okay? So we're going to get into some disagreements in Revelation 11. Uh, maybe what I propose to you today is different than what you've seen, but let's, let's be assured that there's great unity and then we're just sort of trying to figure out how the finer details fit in. Revelation chapter 11 I think probably the best thing to do is just read it straight out with the reminder that I won't be able to unpack everything. I'm not trying to dodge anything. I just want to bring out, the, I think, the, the more important highlights of it. Uh, but let's put the, all the verses in front of us. So chapter 11, 1 all the way through uh, 19, and then we'll just back up and, and uh, take it one piece at a time. I hope and trust that rather than feeling discouraged or overwhelmed, that you would feel encouraged this morning. God has a word for you. It might take a while for us to get to it because it's weird, as is most chapters in Revelation.
John writes, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe was past. Behold, the third woe was soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you. Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for, the, for, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple, there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. So far, so clear, right? All right. Let's look at the first two verses. The first two verses. God promises to secure his people on earth, even while everyone else is given over to the nations. God is making a promise here that throughout the church age, God is going to secure, he's going to keep his people on the earth even while everyone else on the earth is given over to the nations for trampling. I think that's the best understanding of what's happening here. You see that he's given a rod, a measuring, think of a ruler or a yardstick to measure the temple that he's seeing in his vision. And the measuring, I think, means God securing his people. That is, setting them apart from what is unholy, setting the holy apart from the profane. You see that channeling, uh, that similar theme from Old Testament references, including Ezekiel uh, chapter 40, chapter 42, Zechariah chapter 2. 
can look those up later and, and compare it and put those two together and see what does it mean when God is making measurements. Uh, those passages, the angel is doing the measuring. Here, John is doing the measuring, but it, it's pulling these people aside, drawing the circle or the square, we should say, and saying, this is my people. And outside of that, uh, they're going to be trampled. This is about acceptance versus rejection. What God is accepting versus what God is rejecting. Some say what God is protecting versus what God is leaving unprotected. And I think that's true if you take it to mean a spiritual protection, not a physical protection. It can't be a physical protection because Revelation talks about Christians getting killed, right? So it can't be a physical protection, but it's a spiritual protection more in the lines of what Paul talks about when he says nothing can separate us. Death, persecution, nothing can separate us from God. He secures his people, and the world can't touch it. The world can't undo it. Uh, So when we look at this text, I think it's channeling what uh, Jesus and Paul had promised, that no one can snatch the elect out of Jesus' hand, nothing can separate us from God. They don't mean that no physical harm will befall us. So I think this is a spiritual setting apart and protecting his sealed people. And what they mean, I think what this means, is there's no threat to our standing with God when God secures us. But as Psalm 1 reminds us, not so with the wicked. Not so with the outsiders. Now, what's interesting, I think, is this outer court. He measures the temple, the holy place, but the outer court, he goes, no, don't measure that. Don't measure that part. That part is going to be given over to the nations for trampling. So the outer court doesn't experience the same kind of protection that the inner court, the, the inner portion of the temple receives. Now there's different views on this. I want to give you two that I think are viable. One of them is that, uh, well, first let me just back up and say, you might go, this is measuring the temple. Why is that believers? Because God's presence on earth is his believers. That's what the temple always was. And many of you who have been around Scripture for a while can already off the top of your head think of passages that uh, tell us that the, the church is God's temple on earth now. There's not a need for a physical temple now because God's temple on earth is the presence of the Holy Spirit through his believers. We are God's sacred space on this earth. I can take 10 minutes to prove that now or just bank on a collective memory from many other sermons, but that's pretty easy to track down uh, in Scripture. So, I don't agree with the interpreters that go, there's got to be a physical temple in the future. I don't think so. We are the temple. Here he's measuring a temple in the vision, and God is saying, this is my people. These are the ones that are the holy worshipers, he calls them, right? These are the ones, verse 1, who worship around the altar. These are the worshipers. And out there, those are the non-worshipers. So here's a couple ways to take this that I think are viable. One, the temple represents believers in their spiritual protection. These are the sealed people. And then the people in the outer court represent believers also, but in their lack of physical protection. So some would say, measuring the temple, this is the spiritual protection. And then the outer court, it's still the temple. It's not the city. It's not the world. It's still the temple. But the outer court represents our lack of physical protection. In other words, we are going to get trampled by the nations, church. We're going to get persecuted, we're going to get arrested, we're going to get killed, 
not every single Christian, but this is going to happen throughout the church age. It's going to culminate, maybe ramp up at the end. But we're spiritually protected and we can never really be separated from God. That's one way to take it. I mean, there are many other ways. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to spare you and present two. Another way to take it, and this is the one I, I think I lean toward, is that the temple represents true believers while the outer court represents false believers. The true believers are protected spiritually and the others are not. So think about the outer court and what that means. I think it's difficult to choose between these two because they're both true, right? Even just within the themes of Revelation. Is is it true that believers are sealed and cannot be separated from God? Yes. Is it true that not everyone who claims to be a Christian meets the Lord's approval? Think of the seven churches where he's like, hey, I'll spit you out. Or you have people that are running around with Jezebel or that kind of stuff. He's, he's trying to weed out people in the church that attend church, go to church, know churchy things, but aren't. Think of, again, of the Charles Wesley testimony that Ben just shared with you. All these years in church, and then he finally gets saved and is able to write a hymn. Can you be a church attender? Can you show up to a place to worship and not be in? Yeah. And I think that fits with what we see in Broadly in the book of Revelation, it fits with passages all over, all over Scripture. So it seems right now to me that the better option is to think of this in terms of insiders, true believers, and outsiders, so-called believers, professed believers, who don't make it in the end. Think about in the Old Testament, the outer court is where the Gentiles met. You remember that? The Gentiles were allowed to hang out in the outer court and worship in the outer court, but they weren't allowed to go inside They weren't truly included. They were actually had sort of this unclean status and they couldn't proceed any further, okay? Now, those who are included today in what God calls his temple, his people, are a mix of ethnicities. Gentiles aren't kept out. It's a mix of ethnicities from all over the world, from all walks of life. So now, I think in this vision, the outer court represents not an ethnic exclusion, but another kind of exclusion. They worship, they show up to worship, but they're not really in. And then God says, don't measure them because they're being given over, verse 2, given over to the nations. And I think that concept of giving over fits really well with the biblical theme of handing over professed believers to Satan because they're playing games in the church and need to be judged. 1 Corinthians 5.5, anyone? It even fits, I think, Romans chapter 1 where people know God in a sense, but even though they know God, they dishonor God, and then what does God do? He hands them over. In that particular case, not to the nations, but to their own debased minds, to their own fleshly desires. You guys want to do that? Okay. And hands them over to it. So I think it fits to see the outer court as not the church, but also not the world, like the abject people who just hate God, but the people that surround the the core group, but they're not really in the core group. And even though this is a small group here today, I don't think it should be lost on us to think that even in this representation here, there's an in and there's an out. Being in with God is not stepping foot through that threshold, that physical doorway right there. And I hope that as you consider these themes in Revelation, there will be a little lump in your throat and you will reckon with whether you are truly in or whether you think you're in just because 
you do religious things. Religious things happen in the outer court and they're handed over. Even the holy city, the earthly Jerusalem that was supposed to be the holy city, they rejected Christ and they're handed over and they're trampled. The outsiders in this passage live in a quote-unquote holy city, but they're not really in the temple. So here's what I think we need to understand. Revelation is full of hope, but it's also full of warning. Hope is extended to the persevering Christians, the one who conquer no matter what pressure is put on them. But the warning tends to point not just at the abject unbeliever, but the so-called believer who really isn't. The distinction is seen in how the insiders worship at the altar. You see that? The insiders in the temple of God are there at the altar, and they're the ones who worship. The altar is the sacrifice that's necessary to commune with God. True worshipers, true worshipers recognize the centrality of sacrifice to this entire thing. What is the point of Jesus dying on an altar, his altar being the cross? What is the point of that? Why do I need that? I need that because I should die. And some people, they become Christianish, they become religious, but they don't get that part. Seminarians, professors, churchgoers, some pastors, they don't, they don't understand that part. We get uncomfortable with it. We don't want to talk about death. We don't want to tell people what they deserve or don't deserve. It's yucky. It's a big downer. But true worshipers get it. So-called worshipers can answer theological questions about sacrifice, but they don't get it. God created us to worship, and this is why I have life. He is life. But we fail to worship. We worship other things. We worship ourselves, etc. And so we're rightly cut off from that life. What does it mean to be cut off from life? Death. Jesus came to live the perfect life of worship that we failed at, and then he grants that perfect worship To us, he credits that perfect worship to us, and then we get that benefit of life, that connection with the Father, while he takes our penalty, which is death, so that we can have life. And that's what it means to worship at the altar. It means you recognize you utterly need Jesus' death and resurrection in order to rescue you, and that remains at the center of your worship. Parents, Do not be content with the success of getting your kids to sit here each Sunday. That's better than them being at home. But that is not the win. Adults, do not be content with your church attendance. Showing up here is not the win. A good Christian shows up. <laughs> but that, that's not it. You're around it. Are you actually in it? And I think this sounds a warning. However you interpret I don't care how you interpret this. There's an in and there's an out. 
And for those who are in, they are sealed and they are protected. For those who are not, they are not. Revelation sounds a direct warning aiming at those that are not truly in. When sacrifice doesn't sit at the center of your life, one sign of that is that your life is not a sacrificial one. If the sacrifice of Christ is not at the center of your life, your life is not going to be a living sacrifice, as Paul calls it in Romans 12, right? If the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is not my center, I'm not going to be, sacrifice is not going to be the, the reigning theme in my life. And what does that mean if that's the case? If Jesus' death for my death is not my center, then Jesus is just a tack on. And then I don't have to die for anything. If his cross is not the center of my life, I don't have to pick up a cross. And when I live my life like that, and trouble comes my way on account of the word of God, trouble comes my way on account of Jesus Christ, I'm not going to take a bullet for him. I'm not going to take a job loss for him. I'm not going to sacrifice my desires. This is what exposes the insiders and the outsiders. It's not showing up to church. It's when it gets difficult out there to live for Christ and you cave. That's what's happening in the book of Revelation, right? That's what he's warning the seven churches about. It's not enough to show up at church. Does your life look like this? Do you conquer even through persecution? For some of us, as soon as somebody we feel like dating doesn't fit the profile and you've got to make your choice, it's exposed right there. I don't care what the Bible says. I want to date this person, right? It might be pressure you experience at your job. It might be uh, you realizing you need Christ, but your spouse isn't on board and you'd rather not rock the boat of the marriage and so you just try to coast lukewarm. What happens to lukewarm Christians? They are regurgitated by Christ. The Christian life is constant sacrifice. Constant. And if you don't get that, you're definitely not in. It is con- you might have to sacrifice uh, awkward conversations, troubled friendships, loss of friendships. You might have to sacrifice your job that's asking you to do something or be a certain way and you know that's not Christ and you have to put your foot down. I mean, there, there are all number of ways in which we get tested, so to speak. And when we just fold and roll with it, we're probably exposing that we're not in. But if the altar is central to your worship, that means sacrifice is central to your worship. And if Christ's sacrifice is central to your worship, that means you live a life of sacrifice for him. As hard as it gets. Folks, I think this person who's not a living sacrifice, who's not an altar worshiper in this way, is not ready for the end. Is not ready for the end. I need to move fast. I need to move forward. Part of that sacrificial living is to live as witnesses in this world, and we see this represented in these two witnesses for the Lord, these two witnesses that we just read about. And here's what I think it's getting at. While everyone else is given over to the nations, God's witnesses speak truth to the world and they cannot be stopped. God's witnesses speak truth to the world and they're powerful and unstoppable. In verses 3 through 13, which we just read, is channeling the olive trees, the lampstands from Old Testament prophecies. 
Um, uh, there's so much to get into there. Uh, these are uh, taking Old Testament themes and, and pushing it forward. The, the disagreement, not surprisingly, this is controversial, uh, that there's more than one way to take these. What are these two prophets that are being spoken of here? This is probably one of the more controversial aspects of Revelation, but I, wanted, I don't want to get bogged down in it too long. I'll try my best to press forward. Many take it more literally. There's going to be some point in the future. Some point in the future, there are going to be two literal physical prophets who walk around prophesying. They get killed and then they, they resurrect and everyone's like, what? And then the end comes. Okay. Some people think it's not just two future prophets, it's two past prophets that are brought forward. That is literally Elijah and Moses because the miracles that they perform are Moses' miracles and Elijah miracles and they must come back. And that the church is looking forward to that day. Just hang in there. Eventually God is going to send his two prophets and they're going to walk around uh, preaching and breathing fire on people. Some think it's um, representative of the church. And I think that's much more likely. That the two witnesses here are symbols of the church during the church age. And let me just give you some points really quickly in favor of that view. Why are there two of them? Uh, Jesus sent out his disciples out in pairs in Luke 10. This is probably in keeping with a true testimony needing to be established by the witness of at least two. Uh, Deuteronomy 19, 15, on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a matter be confirmed. Uh, you see that in Matthew 18. You see that in 1 Timothy 5. But I think this is why Jesus sent his disciples out in twos. And I think it's a fair symbol to use. Two witnesses that represent the evangelizing function of the church in this age. So we don't just sit there going, well, I'm spiritually protected. Great. No, you, what is the risk? Part of that sacrifice is the, the risk of your life, going out there to a world that hates the message and preaching the message. That's the role of the witness. Jesus in the Great Commission, remember Matthew 28, he, says, he tells the, the disciples, go and make disciples. What did he say just before that? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples. All authority is given to me. Therefore, he says, go and make disciples. So he's not saying, first, I have authority. Second, and unrelated, you're supposed to evangelize. It's because I have authority, therefore, you go successfully evangelize. Go and make disciples because I have authority. And you see that here where these prophets are given authority in verse 13. So I don't, or verse uh, 3. This is not uh, unrelated to that. Witnesses are granted authority to go throughout the world proclaiming the message of God. And our message to the world is repent and believe, which was the same message that Jesus brought to the world. That is judgment and hope. For those who don't receive it, it's judgment. To those who receive it, it's hope. But just because the language is future, that he's going to send two witnesses, he's going to do this, and the beast is going to do that, I don't think that necessarily means it's way out in the future in the year 3022 or something like that. Maybe it's possible, but the future language doesn't mean, it just means that this is the church age. It's starting in John's day, and it's going to continue. And so I don't think it means that it's going to be specifically two Old Testament prophets walking around. 
Then, of course, I'll just show you this quickly. The parallels between Revelation 11 and Revelation 13, I think, show that these are the saints, not two particular witnesses. If you see this up here, uh, you can compare these two verses, if we have it. Do we have it? Okay, so Revelation 11, 7, this is where we just were. And when they had finished their testimony, these are the two witnesses, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Who's them? The two witnesses. Remember I told you, Revelation recapitulates, right? It just changes the camera angle. When we get to Revelation 13, 7, here's this very similar line. Also it, from verse 1, the beast rising out of the sea, uh, was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. So because of those parallels uh, and because the descriptions fit the ministry of the church throughout the church age, I don't think we look to the future for two specific prophets. I think we look around you right now and say we are witnesses in this church age. And I know that sounds different than you've ever, than you may have ever heard, but let me just put this out there. Part of the confusion, part of why we've gotten so discouraged with studying the book of Revelation is the impossibility of pinning it down to such literal, specific... So, for example, when those two prophets come, two literal prophets, two Old Testament dudes walking around, are they breathing fire? Well, no, that's symbolic. Okay, so we all have to pick our spots, right? No one's going, it's all literal. I take it literal. Are they going to breathe fire? Yes or no? are they dragons what's happening what is happening why can't we just go it's fiery judgment and it's a message of judgment okay so does it have to be two or can two represent something do numbers represent things in the book of revelation yeah except for here so what a lot of people do is when it's a dragon and it's weird okay it's a symbol but when it says two people it's got to be real and i'm going why? How come it has to be from a fantasy novel that you're familiar with to be a fantasy? I mean, when you're reading a fantasy novel, are there people in it? Are you like, oh, well, those people are real. Aragorn's real. I'm from the line of Numenor. No, you're not, man. There's no such thing. Right? Tolkien is using people and dragons and elves and all these other things, but they're all symbolic of something else. I don't think we need the two witnesses to be literal. Let me give you four symbols here. I'll unpack four things, uh, symbols from this passage that I think will help us here. First is the time frame. We're given 42 months. We're given 1,260 days. We're given three and a half years. You're like, wow, that's a lot of times. Well, they're the same time. Just put in different terms, right? 42 months, 1,260 days, three and a half years. It's the same time frame. So we're dealing with a time frame. Some people say in the future, you can set your watch. And as soon as it starts, you set your watch. And 42 months after the watch starts, uh, they're going to be killed or or something like that. But I think these are uh, expressing the, the church age, the witnessing age. Numerology is symbolic. What are we symbolizing here? Well, these are just some examples. Israel was in the wilderness for 42 years. Remember, they were about two years before the 40-year punishment. So there's 42. Israel made 42 encampments along the way in that journey. So some would say, hey, this is, Israel's journey in the wilderness is the church age. We're rescued out of Egypt, and then we journey, we persevere, we live on his daily bread until the promised land, right? And so this is channeling that in-between age uh, that is 
post-Egypt before promised land. Elijah's ministry, which is channeled here with the miracles that we see the, the prophets, these two witnesses performing, Elijah's ministry of judgment was three and a half years. Remember when Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain, and then there was drought for three and a half years, and then Elijah prayed, okay, rain, and then it rained. That was, that was three and a half years, and we see that uh, it's a, a symbol of prophetic, the prophetic ministry of Elijah. There's a lot to unpack here. I just think, I, I think it's very viable to see this as representative of the church age and that this is a time of the church's prophetic ministry to the world, just like Elijah's ministry was in his day. The fire that they breathe out, it consumes, uh, just like uh, echoing uh, Jeremiah 5, if you want to look that up on your own time, Jeremiah 5, where God tells his prophet that his words of judgment will be like fire, and the rebellious people of Judah will be like wood. That doesn't mean when Jeremiah showed up, they all turned into wood, and then he opened his mouth, and he shot fire at them like Godzilla. Okay? It just means that they were, they were the hot coals of their guilt were heaped as they continued to reject the message that otherwise would have offered them hope. That's what it means. Now, most Christians would be like, yeah, I'm comfortable with that. Because it can't mean literal fire. I mean, it can. God could do whatever he wants, right? Elijah brought down fire in the Old Testament. It could be that. But I think most Christians are like, no, I don't think they're actually breathing fire, and I don't think people are turning into wood. I think it means it's symbolic of judgment. I'm like, okay, take that same hermeneutic and let it, let it loose on the whole chapter, man. No, 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 no. it's got to be this, you know. Like I like to say, good luck ordering your extra-large whiteboards to map all that out. I think it's the gospel being preached because the gospel contains judgment, especially in cultures where rebellion against the gospel is particularly stubborn and high-handed. Two more, quick. The nature miracles. Elijah is channeled here as they're doing these miracles. You're like, hey, these two people show up and they're allowed to do all these miracles. They have these powers, right? It's like Elijah stopping rain. They have that same power Elijah had to just stop rain. They had the power that Moses had to turn the Nile into blood or to issue plagues. Those hearken back to the judgments that came with the Old Testament messages. The people didn't listen and they got judged. That's all we need. Do you remember the Old Testament when the prophets walked around and people didn't listen and they got judged? That's what the church age is going to be like. The church witnesses, the church explains, some get saved, but the people that dig their heels in and they remain on the outside, they get judged. We saw that already when the saints prayed that God would do something about this wicked world, and because of those prayers, God rains down judgments. Those are symbolic, unless you also think there's going to be human-faced locusts flying around. Again, we're like, no, no, well, that's symbolic. We've got two witnesses that are symbolic of the church. We've got the ministry of prophecy, the witnessing that happens in the earth, and then when people reject it, they're judged. Let me just pause here real quick before I give you the fourth one. The, the possible danger, I think, in waiting for two specific witnesses to come in the future is the church waiting around for two future prophets to do the work of speaking God's truth to the nations. Just hang in there. Eventually he's going to send two guys. Man, they don't play around. Oh yeah, what do they do? They go out there and preach. Man, you go out there and preach. That's our job. And so we don't sit around waiting for two special prophets to do the work. We're supposed to do the work. 
So when we look at the things that they're doing, that, that judgment follows up on the, the word preached, we realize this fits with what we've seen in Revelation already. We've seen that it's symbolic. It fits with what the rest of Scripture says about uh, judgment following the rejection of the gospel. And if that's true, I'm just not sure what the two prophets in the future are for. If they're bearing an authoritative, powerful witness to an antagonistic world, then brothers and sisters, I say we are the witnesses. Fourth one is the resurrection. Hey, 7 to 14, that's weird, right? Because the beast kills them and they're lying in the street. You're like, that's awfully specific. I know these symbols are specific. Now, some take this to mean that all believers in the end will be resurrected and be given glorified bodies. That's viable, I think, if you take this to be the church. If you take this to be two specific guys, we're all just tuning in on, you know, whatever news channel and helicopters are like, look at these two dead bodies in the streets. They're not putting them in the tomb. And then they're eventually going to wake up and we're going to go, whoa, crazy. And then everybody, possible, all right, possible. I'm not saying that's impossible, but if you take it the way I'm giving it to you, that it's the church, then it's either that this is about the resurrection of the church in the end, because the end is about to happen right now. That's possible. Others take it that the church will be especially heavily persecuted toward the end for a short, short time. Not to the point of extermination or extinction, but the church will be decimated through executions. But the church won't stay down. The church bounces back. While the nations go, we did it. We killed Christianity. We did it. Christianity just bounces back. I lean toward that one. You know why? Haven't we seen that already? Think about what Rome was doing to Christians. What Rome was doing to Christians. Killing Christians as a hobby. Lighting them on fire. Nero going, I want to light up my party lining up the place with Christians on, on poles and lighting them on fire as a warm-up to the gladiator games, just put a family of Christians that you pulled out of a home and let hungry lions attack them. At one point, the, 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 because food was scarce, their beasts were so hungry, they're like, round up, some, round up some Christians so that the beasts don't die. We need them for our games. I know it sounds like a long time, but by the time you get to the year 410, Theodosius, the emperor, makes Christianity the official religion of the empire. What? We try to stamp it out. We ridicule them. We kill them. We separated them from their husbands or wives. We separated them from their kids. We killed them. We killed their kids. We fed them to lions. We saw them in two. How more brutal can we get? And then, boom, it's the official religion, crosses everywhere. Where's the gospel growing fast now? Places where there's great freedom? I'd point you to a place like China, actually. Well, how does that work? They're not even allowed to meet. They have to be underground. A lot of them don't even have Bibles. How can they possibly grow? Because when Satan presses the church, the church bounces back. I don't think this is going to happen in the year, whatever, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, 2,000 years from now. Suddenly we're going to experience, oh, for the first time in history, 
The church nearly gets wiped out, and then bang, they bounce back, they resurrect, and everyone gives glory to God as a result. Or fear is instilled in them. When we've seen it already. So I think this pattern sort of recapitulates. I think maybe it's possible that right before the end, this is sort of a, almost a worldwide, global version of this is happening, but I think we've seen this. And it's true. It's proven true throughout history. Here's the point, and I'll wrap it up. I know we're coming up on our normal time here. Christians, I think however you take this text, we need to be encouraged that God will protect the witness of the church even through the most extreme persecutions. God will protect the witness of the church even through the harshest opposition by the world. That should encourage us. And then comes the end of the age with judgment and reward. This is the primary theme. Not a lot to disagree on here. The second woe pass in 14, then the third woe is soon to come. 15 announces the end. The seventh angel blows his trumpet. And look at this announcement. Jesus wins, right? The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. He doesn't get usurped. He doesn't get kicked off his throne. The 24 elders worship. They fall on their face. They worship. They're giving thanks to the Lord God Almighty who, who is and who was. What happens to the is to come? It's over, man. No more expecting Jesus to come. He came. This is it. He's taken his great power. He's, he's begun his full reign. The nations raged like Psalm 2, but his wrath came. He judged, and he rewards the prophets and the saints and those who fear his name, both small and great, and he destroys the destroyers of the earth. Then his temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. Verse 19, there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and heavy hail. All those symbols signaling, this is the end. This is the finale. That's the primary theme, and this unites believers. However we interpret the finer details, Jesus wins in the end, and as we are looking ahead to that end, even when we're persecuted, God protects his people, and the church will not be defeated. The world is going to continue to oppose us, church, uh, but they cannot defeat the church. They're going to seek to silence the church, even if it means killing Christians, but they cannot ultimately take life away from Christians. As we read this, it can be either encouraging or it can sound a stark warning. You'll leave here either, unless you just ignore the message totally, you'll either leave here with a weight upon you, wondering if you are part of the sealed, part of the measured out group, or if you're on the outside. And if you have any questions about that, please come talk to me. Come talk to one of the elders, one of the deacons. We want to talk with you about that. Our hope is that you, the, the door is open now. The door is open now to become a part of the in group before the end and before it's too late. For the rest of us, if we live lives of sacrifice, we meet, that, that means we might get pressure. Are you, are you ready for it? The answer is no. Can Christ strengthen us to be ready for it? The answer is yes. Let's lean on him for it and let's pray.
Father, we're thankful to you. As difficult as it is to (laughs) maneuver through this uh, apocalyptic book, we pray that you would, for those among us who are believers, that you would strengthen us, strengthen our resolve, give us grace to follow you no matter what lies ahead. However, things transpire with with this country. Uh, If it gets worse for Christians, we we pray that uh, you would strengthen us and give us the fortitude to to still live loudly, to be witnesses, uh, to be prophetic in our speech, to proclaim the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to offer repentance, and to charge people to believe. For those of us who are not in, Father, I pray this would be a wake-up call, that the trumpets would wake somebody up, and that rather than playing church, they would truly find your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, use this final closing song as a time for our hearts to be assured of your grace going forward, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and we'll close together.